Welcome to Beringa's Energy Innovators Podcast, bringing you a series of thought-provoking and current conversations with industry leaders, where we discuss the transition, transformation, and innovation in energy markets. On today's podcast, we have myself, Will Kinsey from Beringa hosting, and I'm joined by Bex Jeffrey and Tess Kermode from Uber, and Natasha Patel from Beringa's Energy and Resources Practice. We have a conversation on the initiatives Uber are working on to help their partner drivers transition to electric vehicles and the challenges and opportunities involved in driving the electric vehicle agenda forwards. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the latest installment of Beringa's Energy Innovators podcast. Um, so far in this series, we've covered the topic of green energy supply. And in our previous episode, we spoke to Vattenfall about decarbonizing heat. And today we address the third part of the decarbonization challenge, decarbonization of transport with Uber. We're delighted to have Natasha Patel of Beringa and Tesco Mode and Bex Jeffrey of Uber with us to talk today. Um, so welcome guys, lovely to have you here. Um, can we just start off with some, uh, some introductions? Um, Natasha, maybe you'd like to kick us off. Thanks, Will. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Natasha Patel and I lead e-mobility for Beringa Partners. OK, lovely stuff. And uh, Tess. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Tess Kermode. Um, I work in Uber's business development team in Europe, Middle East and Africa. And I've been focusing a great deal of my time on partnerships to help us realise our sustainability goals. So really excited to be here talking to you today. Excellent. And Bex. Hi, I'm Bex Jeffrey. I'm on Uber's operations team. I've been working um, on clean air for the last couple of years. Um, also, like Tess, I'm very excited to be here talking to you. Tess, maybe you could kick us off with a bit of a general introduction to Uber, obviously a company everyone is familiar with, um, but I think there's probably more for us to, to know. Um, so if you, uh, yeah, if you could give us that overview, that'd be great. We started in 2010 um, to solve a simple problem, which was how how people can access a ride at the touch of a button, um, which had never been done before. Um, and now 15 billion trips later, um, we're building more of a platform of, of various different products to help people and things move from one place to the other. So we would say that we're changing the way that people, food um, and things move through cities. Um, we're now operating in more than 10,000 cities um, across six continents. Um, and just to give you a sense of scale, um, I think at, in the last quarter, we saw over 12 million Uber trips happen each day. Um, so, so I think that's when we talk about our scale, it's quite an interesting um, kind of way that we think we can uh, impact the cities that we operate in. Okay, brilliant. That's uh, fantastic. Um, and Natasha, given that we're here to talk about decarbonisation of transport, maybe you could give us, um, kick us off with an overview of where we're at with decarbonisation of transport in the UK at the moment. Absolutely. Um, so transport accounted for 28% of domestic emissions in 2018. That means it's the largest emitting sector in the UK. Um, of that, obviously, passenger vehicles are a huge part of that. And then you've also got uh, medium and heavy goods vehicles, but also, of course, marine and aviation. So I think today we're definitely with Uber looking to focus on the passenger vehicle side of things. And as I'm sure some listeners will know, just this November, the Prime Minister announced that the end of the sale of petrol and diesel cars and vans will happen in 2030. And all vehicles that are sold uh, from 2030 will need to have some 
zero emissions capability. And by 2035, we'll need to be 100% zero emission. So a significant increase in ambition from the UK. Uh, and we've seen that uh, also replicated, of course, in, in EV adoption. So uh, just this year in 2020, we've seen 9% of sales are electric, so plug-in and battery electric vehicles, which is... Um, despite being a very challenging year with COVID and everything else. So actually, I think we've seen uh, incredible increase in EV adoption and a real uh, momentum towards decarbonization of transport, especially on the passenger vehicle side. I think the next couple of years are going to be critical, though, to achieve this target because there's still quite a bit to be done. And I mean, Bex, I'd love to hear your perspectives on, you know, what do you think the challenges are, especially for Uber and, and how are you planning to get there? Yeah, of course. So, um Along with our global commitment, we've we've committed that all our London drivers will transition to electric by 2025. Um, as you mentioned, it's very it's quite ambitious and it's not without its challenges. Um, the three biggest challenges that we think our drivers face are the lack of affordable um, and secondhand fully electric vehicles in the market today. Um, the financial incentives are insufficient to close gaps that exist between hybrids and um, fully electric vehicles. And then finally, there's there's a lack of appropriate charging um, for our drivers. So really focusing our efforts to ensure that if our drivers make the switch, they're appropriately supported and able to um, work in a high mileage capacity once they've made that transition. No, I completely, I completely understand the challenges, and and obviously what you're attempting to do in London is incredibly ambitious. But it also, um, you've got some wider sustainability goals uh, globally as well, which are incredible. Actually, would you, would uh, Tess maybe mind touching on those briefly? Yeah, yeah, happy to. And I think London is, um, you know, the the kind of test bed for for what we've now expanded to many other cities. All of us appreciate the fact that. Um, carbon emissions and air quality are you know, threatening both kind of the future of our planet as we know it, but also causing millions and of premature deaths around the world. Um, and one of the interesting things that that we saw out of uh, the COVID pandemic, you know, obviously it's had many devastating impacts. But I think if you can, if you can find a silver lining from it, the the temporary reduction in carbon emissions um, causing you know pollution to fall and wildlife to return, I think has been. We've all seen those pictures of the the before and during shots of air quality and of kind of congestion in the city. And one thing that we wanted to take away from that was instead of kind of going back to business as usual, we wanted to take this opportunity to set out a plan to reduce our environmental impact um, globally. So, you know, we started on our sustainability journey before this year. We launched Uber Pool in many cities around the world. So that's uh, an effort to get more people into fewer cars. So increase the proportion of, of shared rides on the platform. Um, we also launched a number of low carbon options in the Uber app. So um, in many cities around the world, you have transit options, um, encouraging people to take the train, for example, when they don't need to take um, a car for their journey. Um, and also um, other low carbon options like uh, e-bikes and e-scooters. Um, also before this year, we launched Uber Green in many cities around the world. So that's an option in the Uber app where you can choose um, a hybrid or an EV for your journey. Um, and this year we've expanded Uber Green to, to many more cities um, around the world. So our sustainability journey did really start before this year, but it's really this year that we've taken it to the to the new level. So um, our global commitment is announcing um, the plan to reduce our environmental impact to zero by 2040. 
Um, and to get there, we've got a couple of other commitments um, uh, to, to kind of help us on that journey. So by 2030, we've committed that 100% of rides um, will be in EVs in any city in the US, Canada and Europe. Um, and then in 2025, in Europe, we've gone one step further um, and we're committing that 50% of kilometres driven will be in EVs across um, seven European cities. So aggregated across those seven European cities, which are London, Paris, Berlin, uh, Madrid, Amsterdam, Lisbon and Brussels. Thank you, Tess. That's that's brilliant in terms of the work that Uber is doing and, and your 2030 target, just reflecting on that. So you're basically saying in nine years, all of your journeys in US Canada and Europe are going to be on electric and I think that's brilliant because that's that is so ambitious yeah thank thank you um it, it is certainly a uh, a punchy ambition but I think we believe you know as the largest mobility platform in the world and I, I spoke earlier about some of the the metrics in terms of the scale um we really do think it's our responsibility to more aggressively tackle this challenge and it, sustainability and addressing environmental concerns is now one of our fundamental strategic objectives and Yes, we, we have started on that journey, but there's a lot more to come. And I think um, we'll, we'll touch on some of those challenges and more of the specific um, initiatives that we're, we're working on to, to make this a reality. I think it's worth calling out, though, the fact that, um, yes, that ambition um, is punchy, but actually we've gone further than that in London. And may, maybe, Bex, you're working day in, day out on our London plans. Maybe you can talk a little bit about more, more about what we're trying to do in London. Yeah, absolutely. So... Back in 2018, we announced that we um, would be fully electric on the platform um, by 2025. And so in January 2019, um, we started this journey by launching the London Clean Air Plan. This was an initiative we launched to help make electric vehicle upgrades more affordable for drivers. And so what we what we do with this initiative is we, we charge riders a 15 pence per mile um, clean air fee and this builds up and drivers can use this money to help reduce the cost of moving to an electric vehicle. Um, but that's not everything we're doing. We have a number of other initiatives. So um, ensuring that we have the right electric vehicles available, um, supporting partner drivers in the education required um, to move to an, a new technology like fully electric. And then more on the, the customer side. So giving customers greener options. As Tess mentioned, we've launched an Uber Green product in, in many cities around the world, but not yet London. We've committed to launch um, Uber Green in London in 2021, where riders will be able to request a zero emission vehicle. And then finally, we've partnered with, with BP Charge Master to improve drivers' access to rapid charging points in key locations, such as the city centre, where previously um, they weren't able to access rapid charger with chargers, which is critical for their um, top-ups needed during, during their working days. As you can imagine, um, these initiatives can't be done alone. We recognise the need to partner with policymakers, communities and industry. Um, and we believe that high-mileage professional drivers can act as a, a flywheel to kickstart the EV mass adoption across society um, through driving high utilization of, um, of charge points, um, in turn improving faster rollout of charge points and therefore increasing um, BV 
fully electric uptake and in turn reducing the cost of vehicles. Okay, awesome. So if I can just quickly summarise, I think where we've where we've got to. So Uber are clearly on a, a large sustainability drive um, with multiple initiatives across uh, across cities globally, especially with a significant focus here in London. Um, and I think Uber are clearly in a very unique position to be able to affect that decarbonisation agenda in the transport sector, given the amount of partner drivers that you have and, and the amount of kilometres that they that they drive. Um, I think in the in the in the um, progression of what we've said, there are a few challenges coming out here. Um, so I think there's there's what we're saying is there's a lack of options for of of, um, uh, of EV models for your drivers to transition to. Um, the, there's a, a perceived kind of insufficient level of funding available to help them do that. Um, and also then charging infrastructure can be a barrier too. So maybe we can just unpack those a little bit. Um, Natasha, maybe we could um, we could talk about those challenges and, and get into those. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so let's, let's take them one by one. So um, Bex, you work, of course, a lot closely with your drivers and within your operational team. And I guess, what has the feedback been on, and, you know, the constraints that they might have to find a suitable vehicle um, that serves the needs of what a private hire vehicle driver need, uh, requires of, of his car? Yeah, we we do. We work we work closely with, with our drivers. Um, and we get a lot of feedback from them, particularly um, at eight EV ambassadors. And I think um, there's a slightly positive story here, actually, which is that vehicles available today are definitely, you know, there's far more models on the market than there was just one year ago. And the availability, the supply of those vehicles has significantly improved since last year. Um, we're starting to see the bigger battery sizes that are really crucial for our drivers. Um, becoming more available in the more mass market um, models. Um, so there, there's some promising movement in in this area. But um, what our what our drivers really need is they need, uh, as I've mentioned, those bigger battery sizes, 60 kilowatt hours. Um, hopefully, we'll see 80 kilowatt hours coming onto the market soon. And some really um, positive feedback on some of the the models that are coming out now. We've um, partnered with. Um, Nissan to enable drivers on our platform to buy um, all electric Nissan Leafs, including that the bigger, newer uh, 62 kilowatt hour model. Um, and they're able to get a Nissan Leaf for less than the cost of um, a Toyota Prius hybrid through this partnership. Oh, that's brilliant. So you managed to get your drivers access to to a fully electric battery vehicle with a 62 kilowatt hour battery, which is brilliant. And and what does that do in terms of range? Does it does it serve all of your drivers needs in terms of how much mileage they need in a, in a day? Or actually, is it still limited to a, a selection of your drivers? So when we get to the 60 kilowatt hour um, battery size, that's starting to serve many of our drivers to do a full shift. But not all of them. So the, the the higher the higher end of the mileage drivers, they would still need to do a top up on on that. So um, it's it's much improved from the 40 kilowatt hour, which um, only served a, a smaller proportion of our driver base. Yeah, and I guess as the as the battery sizes get bigger, um, Tess, I'm guessing that there is an impact on the uh, accessibility and affordability of those, because obviously the battery is the largest cost within the electric vehicles. So um, yes, the battery cost is falling, but I guess what is the the, the, the current um, sort of challenges that you have with affordability of these vehicles from your driver's perspective? Yeah, I think I think that's a really, really interesting 
point, especially when you kind of remember that drivers are, you know, independent, they're making their own choices about what, what vehicle they want to drive. So the fundamental challenge in, in shifting kind of behavior and shifting, you know, the choice of, of someone choosing a um, ICE internal combustion engine vehicle versus an EV is um, the economics. So they need to be um, an economically viable choice. And that comes down to something that that we obsess over and Uber. So the total cost of owning an EV has to be at least equal or better than the total cost of owning a, a hybrid um, or an internal combustion engine vehicle. So, so when we talk about total cost, we're thinking about all of the aspects that make up, you know, the costs of a professional driver. So that's the cost of the vehicle. And clearly, as you say, as batteries, the bigger batteries are more expensive. And so typically the bigger battery vehicle, vehicles are more expensive. And so we, we want to see those um, come down and um, for, for more bigger uh, capacity vehicles um, become more affordable. Uh, but also there's other factors in there like, you know, maintenance costs and insurance costs and um, obviously the cost of, of fuel. So whether that's, um, you know, petrol or diesel versus uh, the, the electricity cost. Um, and the when you when you think about an EV driver, their their cost of fuel is clearly electricity. And for for most drivers who use the Uber app, they don't have access to install a home charger. You know, some do, but not the vast majority. And so the cost of public charging is really important. Um, and actually one factor, and maybe we'll come, come on to talking about this more specifically later, but um, the opportunity cost for professional drivers of charging is another important factor in the total cost of ownership because, um, you know, for uh, for a sort of regular consumer, um, they might not mind so much if they need to wait half an hour, 45 minutes to, to charge the car. Um, they might take a break, you know, scroll through some uh, apps on their phone. Um, but for a professional driver, that is probably time when they would be earning. So we really have to think about what are the best charging options for drivers so that they are lowering uh, the opportunity cost of, of time that time that they would be earning if they're charging instead. So, yeah, I, I think total cost of ownership, look, in summary, is is the important factor in, in how we make this an economically kind of rational choice and, and something that we need to partner with with cities, with OEMs, with charging companies, with policymakers, um, so that we create both kind of the right economic but also policy kind of conditions to make an electric vehicle the, the most sensible choice for drivers financially. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. And I guess Obviously, a lot of your drivers uh, with combustion engine vehicles would be accessing um, used vehicles, uh, which helps reduce their upfront cost. How has that translated? And of course, policymakers have have rightly put in some uh, sort of, you know, the plug in grant for a new um, electric vehicle car. But as I understand it, we don't have policy support for secondhand vehicles and the secondhand market can be quite restricted. So have your drivers had that? Has that been a bit of a challenge for you and your drivers? Yeah, absolutely. So, so when we compare the total cost of ownership, the reason why there is such a big gap at the moment between electric vehicles and um, hybrid or ICE vehicles is because we're comparing a new electric vehicle versus a second-hand hybrid or ICE vehicle, because that is what drivers who use the Uber app are using today. So, it, yes, bringing down the cost of new vehicles is kind of one way to close that gap, but we do also need to see the 
the, the, the second-hand market of EVs grow in size, but also those right policy conditions to, to favour the, the drivers choosing second-hand options. So exactly like you said, um, grants being available for, for those second-hand EVs rather than just buying a new EV. Um, those are the types of things that, that we think will help um, kick off this kind of flywheel and conversion to EV. Right. No, that that makes sense. And I, um, Bex, you mentioned your partnership with Nissan in terms of access to vehicles. I guess Nissan would be a, an ability for your drivers to access because they've obviously had the largest fleet of of electric vehicles in the UK, having launched their Leaf back in 2010. So they've they've kind of celebrated their 10 year anniversary of electric vehicles, and we would have seen the first or second round of vehicles of theirs sort of come come into the into the second hand market. Has has that partnership enabled you to to get better access to second hand vehicles as well? Currently we haven't explored uh, second hand vehicles through that partnership. It's something that we could look to do. I think the challenge we see with the second hand market um, at the moment is that many of those vehicles coming into the second hand second hand market from two to three years ago are those smaller battery sizes that aren't so suitable. So at the moment, it's um, a little bit of a waiting game as we wait for that secondhand market to develop. But what we um, what we really need to see is kind of policies to help develop that secondhand market and to get um, vehicles such as uh, leased vehicles that come off lease after two years to sort of be um, building that market for the future for the next coming years. Yeah, no, that that would make sense. That that um, that's understandable. And then another point that you picked up on, um, Tess, that was quite interesting, was obviously opportunity cost. I'm guessing there are going to be different use cases for different taxi drivers. But if somebody did have access to good overnight charging, I'm I'm guessing that some of that opportunity cost would be reduced because they wouldn't need that much of access to in-day charging. Is that is that fair? Is that the kind of use cases you're seeing? Maybe maybe Bex, you might have some insight on that one. Yeah, that's completely right. And that's why we um, recently announced five million to invest in um, on street infrastructure for that near home overnight charging for drivers. We think it's the um, biggest challenge that remains to meet our commitments. And so while we know, you know, five million isn't going to solve the problem or go anywhere near solving the problem, we hope that it can accelerate and kickstart rollout um, in some of the areas where um, provision is low. And so our primary motivation is to sort of improve um, immediate term um, provision in some of the boroughs where we have many of our, our drivers living. And also to try and sort of prove that if you put um, charge points near high mileage users, that the, the business case works. You know, utilisation will be higher when supported by high mileage drivers, and that can in turn help the rollout to support wider society. That's a really interesting point, because obviously at the moment, if you had an off street car parking spot, you'd probably paying something like 14 pence for charging overnight versus, I guess, some of the more on street charging or public charging can be anywhere between um, sort of, you know, 20 ish pence to per kilowatt hour to to 35, 40 pence if you're doing rapid ultra rapid charging. So there is a bit of a a price disparity isn't there as well in terms of where drivers are able to access their charging effects. Yeah, that, that's completely true. And obviously home charging is both the most optimal in terms of availability and, and price point. I think we're really keen to see the price point for on street as well as, as rapid become a bit more 
competitive and consistent. We do have a partnership with City Centre Rapid Top Up, and that's actually um, at a very competitive price point that, that, that has benefits versus fuel. That's really interesting. So, so it sounds like uh, whether it is rapid charging or whether it's overnight public charging, uh, on-street public charging, um, as you mentioned, and to sort of put that point forward again, you know, the access to high mileage drivers means that you have a larger ability to deploy that kind of charging infrastructure because you get better, as you mentioned, better surety of that demand, better utilization. So, uh, it does uh, have. It's a really interesting opportunity, isn't it, for local authorities and for cities to use your particular use case and actually improve the deployment of, of charging infrastructure locally, which uh, I think, as you mentioned uh, right up front, is is kind of then the enabler for uh, for asking for, you know, addressing EV adoption for those localities, for those local regions as well. And actually, uh, thinking about it, Bex, I, I was also um, sort of uh, wondering in terms of access to public charging, you know, the opportunity cost that Tess mentioned earlier is directly proportionate to how long people have to wait in order to do that charging or how long it takes them to complete that charging. So there must be certain speeds of charges that high mileage drivers would need. Yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up because um, when we talk about at or near home overnight charging, it's also important to think about what the appropriate solution is for high mileage drivers. And so, as we've mentioned earlier, having a bigger battery such that you can complete or almost complete your full day's driving without needing to charge is only really the benefits only really realized if you are starting your day with a full battery. And so, when we look at the on street um, near home charging options, so what we call slow and fast charging. If you take a, a lamppost charger, which would be a, a slow charger, when you're getting to the battery sizes of 60 kilowatt hours to 80 kilowatt hours, you're looking at a over 15 hours to over 20 hours um, type charging time to get to a full battery. And so we, we really think that for while those solutions are convenient and suitable for um, some parts of the, the public, um, we would really be looking at a minimum of a seven kilowatt fast charger. Awesome. So I'll just um, just jump in there. So I think really fascinating discussion. And what we're what we're hearing here is that the the challenges facing Uber in this situation are very typical EV challenges, right? That we see across the industry. So it's it's finding a vehicle that's suitable to your needs. There's a cost challenge, and there's the ability to charge, right? And obviously there's a very specific Uber lens over that, which is really really interesting. Um, what's the opportunity cost of the time that you're actually charging? And obviously that's very pertinent to uh, Uber partner drivers who make their money from when they're basically driving customers around. Clearly Uber are doing a huge amount here, right? There's there's various action plans. There's a huge range of partnerships various bits of funding being put in place to help drive this. If we were to draw this all to a conclusion, what's the real call to action here? What, what, does, what does Uber or you guys see as the main thing that needs to happen in order to enable this transition to fully electrified transport? Yeah, and I think um, we think there's a, a real opportunity for policymakers here. And so some of the principles that we believe are, are universal that policymakers should be considering in the transition to um, fully electric and zero emission is to think in terms of um, electric miles versus ownership by changing that mindset from number of EVs to EV miles or zero emission miles. We think that's kind of the key principle. Um, we think this should be done um, with sort of three goals in mind. So 
ensuring all high mileage drivers can reliably charge overnight where they park. And a couple of ideas that we think are, are helpful to consider here are centralizing um, charging network planning and analytics. So similar to how we've seen Amsterdam roll out charging, we think there's a benefit to cross city planning to avoid the mismatch, the sort of postcode lottery in a sense of the charging availability that we see particularly across London. We also think policymakers should consider the right to charge for drivers without off-street parking, such that no one is blocked from transitioning to EV by the their, um, availability of charging. Um, and a minimum of the seven kilowatt speed of charges to ensure full charging is possible overnight. Um, we also think policymakers should be aiming to stimulate an affordable second-hand EV market um, more suited to professional drivers. Um, so making cheaper, longer-range EVs really affordable, um, tilting EV sales to high-mileage drivers, as we've mentioned, to get that kickstart, that flywheel, and developing the second-hand market, which we've spoken about already. And then finally, to tilt the economics of everyday use for high mileage drivers in particular. So this could be through um, taxes and subsidies that naturally scale on use as opposed to um, on ownership, um, addressing the upfront cost barriers for high mileage drivers and emission-based road charging. Really interesting points, Bex. And, I, and especially, I think your point on electric miles is a really important one, isn't it? Because if it is about, you know, 28% of, of, of emissions come from, from transport and I think 60, 67% within that from passenger vehicles, uh, if you were to then, you know, go for the easy wins, as it were, and you've concentrated on those those drivers that are, that are generating most amount of those miles, actually electrifying them, you'd get an incredible bang for your buck as it were on carbon emissions mm. in the UK as a whole and I think that that lens on electric miles is is um, so we, we've obviously done that within passenger vehicles by focusing on passenger vehicles in the first instance rather than other modes of transport and this is now the next lens under that which is within passenger vehicles who are, who are the largest mileage drivers and making those electric so I think that's a really interesting point and and one policymakers should definitely be considering and uh, and building into um, I think the second reflection for me would be uh, your point on on having charging infrastructure planned more centrally. I mean, we've done that really well with rapid infrastructure, haven't we, um, with the project rapid plan that they've got. So we should definitely be thinking about that more centrally from a local charging infrastructure perspective as well, because local authorities are are overwhelmed by this challenge. It's it's quite a hard piece to understand exactly what do my what do my constituents need? How do I get them what they need without making it political? Because people perceive that EVs are for rich people. Um, you know, it's quite a tricky political balance and actually central government could uh, could definitely step in and support some of that. So really interesting call, uh, points of call to action. I won't comment on all of them because we're out of time, but I think they're really interesting points. And but those two definitely jumped out to me as a as um really um topical brilliant awesome and and tess um what would your what would your closing kind of call to action points be yeah, so I think just just building on what Beck said, you know, clearly there's a lot of work we're doing on the on the policy side, but there's also work needs to happen on the industry side as well. So that's why we're working with, you know, the like, likes of the different um, EV OEMs, um, charging operators um, and others to make sure that we are creating the right economic incentives um, to make choosing an EV the most viable option. So, so a couple of the things, and I don't want to get too much into specifics at the end of the, end of the call, but you, as, as we 
spoke about um, opportunity cost of charging, um, one of the things that we haven't seen a huge amount in the market, but is, is starting to be focused on is how do you make the environment around charging something where drivers don't consider it um, lost time? So, so, for example, looking at charging hubs where there's options to, you know, use the restrooms, take a break, uh, use some vending. Um, so thinking about these kind of tactics that can make um, yeah, choosing an EV um, a, more, a more economically viable option. That's really interesting reflection, Tess, because obviously we're talking about business model innovation, aren't we? How to convert a particular challenge into an opportunity, which I think is brilliant. And I think industry has, uh, has done a lot in collaboration between people like you, which brings the perspectives of what drivers need to providers like BP Pulse, means that you start to really see that come to life, which is, which is brilliant to see. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys. I think uh, in that call to action, uh, part there we, we've got a whole range of things there that I think are all super valuable things to take away so if I just give a quick summary of what those are I think we've covered that it's it's really important that, that high mileage drivers are able to charge overnight to minimize the opportunity cost of uh, charging while they're working um, we want a minimum speed of, of charges at seven kilowatts there's a really key thing around stimulating the second hand market to make buying electric vehicles affordable for drivers um, and then really that all comes into basically changing. We need to change the economics for high mileage drivers, right? So I think there's a there's a policy drive there to try and make it so that this is an environment where it is economically uh, the right, you know, economically attractive to drive an EV. I think Tess a really interesting point as well. While we need this huge policy focus, we also need that collaboration with industry, with charge point operators, with OEM, with uh, vehicle manufacturers. Um, but also a really interesting point around making that charging uh, charging environment attractive so that drivers can take a break and it's not seen as lost time. So reduce that opportunity cost. Um, I think there's a huge the wealth of things for us to take away there. So that's um, absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much uh, for your time there, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with our latest podcast releases and hear more from Beringa and our energy innovators. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast, or you would like to learn more about Baringa, please email us at energypodcast at or visit our website, LinkedIn Podcast Bio.